dearly when she's not here. Romans chapter 2, if you would, I would um, uh, ask you to uh, be patient as we move through this next uh, part of this lesson. Uh, last week, uh, many of you were in SSBC, so I'll catch you up a little bit about what the Lord laid on our heart last week, and we'll try to get through some of that quickly and then get into this part here. Romans chapter 2, verse number 11. For there is no respect of persons with God, for as many as have sinned without the law also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law uh, shall be judged by the law. Uh, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. The subject this morning is more difficult, I guess, uh, as we looked at the subject today. And the uh, subject is a damaged conscience, a damaged conscience. Last week, we looked at the blessings of a conscience, uh, but now we're talking about a damaged conscience. And so let's pray, ask the Lord's blessings uh, on his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, come together with your people, to sing together, to, to think about your coming on that first song. Uh, just think about the second coming of Christ and how you are going to return. Uh, Lord, for the worship of these other songs that we sang, we thank you for that. But Lord, we're coming to a subject here today that I pray you would help us to understand. Give us grace to receive what you would have for us today. Thank you for the blessings of having a conscience today. And I pray you'd help us understand what a damaged conscience can do and give us grace to leave here different than we came. We pray, God, if there's one here today that's not saved, that uh, they would leave here before they uh, go back to their cars or back to their lives, that they would leave here saved on their way to heaven. So guide us to truth today. I pray you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. All right. This conscience, this word conscience is used 29 times in the New Testament only. And uh, last week, as we started working through this, uh, we, number one, looked at the conscience being a gift. More for that tells us that it, the Gentiles that didn't even have the law of God uh, were a law unto themselves. And it says, if you look at carefully, verse number 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. What does that mean? You, know, you don't have Genesis to Revelation written on the hearts of man, but God, by his grace and his mercy, has given every man that's ever been born a moral law written in their hearts. That's why you go anywhere in the world today, there is still morals. There is still um, a conscience. One of the most frustrating things for evolutionists is the very existence of a conscience. I mean, trying to explain, am I not on? I'm not on, okay? Time out. Let's see if we can do this here. Switch me out. Thank you, brother. All right. That was a pit stop right there. Look at that, man. That's the fastest we've ever done that, all right? And, uh, and so 
the conscience of, of man uh, is a frustrating reality to, to evolutionists because they don't know where that came from. I mean, they could try to explain how we evolved into the human beings that we are now. But you ask them where conscience came from, they, they stumble over words. They don't know where that came from because it is a gift that God gave his creation built into the DNA of man. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that it's manifest in them. It's, it's built in. It's like part of the standard operating equipment for every human being uh, to have a conscience. And again, a very frustrating reality because the, 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 the evolutionist doesn't understand that. And you can, all, you can prove the existence of God going back from the morals that every person has in their conscience back to the existence of God. And so that's a blessing of it. That's the light that God has given every man of who he is. Not everything about him, but even the heavens declaring the glory of God. Uh, they have a own, their own language. And God, in his blessings of, of giving us light inside of us, resonating with the creation, that there is a God. That's why you go to any place in the world, any time in history, they all had a system whereby they knew they were sinners, they knew they needed to have uh, someone to forgive them, and they would do sacrifices no matter what civilization you go to, you'll find a system of religion. Why is that? Because man knows there's a God. It's manifest in them. Uh, that's why I believe there's no born atheist. There are learned atheists, but there are no born atheists. Conscience is a light in our heart. Number two, last week you talked about conscience is uh, in addition to that, a conscience can be and should be activated by truth. Um, the conscience does something with truth. When truth is spoken to the conscience, it should be, and I'm using these words carefully, it should be activated. It doesn't always happen because of other damages that come to the conscience. Uh, but we looked at John chapter 8 when those men brought the uh, woman that was taken in the act of adultery, the very act thrown in front of him, and then asking him about the law and what the law requires for this woman to be stoned. And you remember what Jesus said. Of course, he uh, spoke to them and he went down to the ground. He rode on the ground as if they weren't even there. Can you imagine that scene? That's interesting. Uh, and here's a woman there, likely uh, uh, half-dressed because it was in the very act. And she's there embarrassed of what she's done. And he... Uh, and then he asked them, he that is without sin, cast the first stone. Remember that? And, uh, and then you find that their conscience uh, was bothered. It says in verse 9 of that chapter, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. They went away. Why? Because they knew, I can't throw this stone at this woman because my conscience is bothering me about my own sin. What happened? The conscience of those men, as perverted as it was, we know according to Leviticus, the man should have been brought too, uh, but only the woman was brought. So we understand this is a setup for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as perverted as their conscience was, when they heard truth, I don't know what the Lord wrote on the, on the ground. I, don't, on the, I have no idea, but I would say it was likely truth. Likely the Ten Commandments. Likely the law that explained their condition of their heart. But whatever he wrote, 
It resonated and it, it, it did something that they weren't expecting. They were bothered. They were convicted by their conscience and they went away from the oldest to the youngest. Why the oldest go first? Because they had more sin than the younger. But the conscience bothered them. It's interesting that consciences can be activated and should be activated by truth. And we looked at Stephen last week. Stephen, when they stoned Stephen, right before they stoned him, he preached one of the most scathing, comprehensive, historical messages on where Christ came from, why Christ came, what they did to the Messiah. And the Bible says that they were cut to the heart. And they stopped their ears. They gnashed on him with their teeth. Indicating that something happened inside and they begin to attack the one that was bringing them truth. In other words, when someone is speaking something that agrees with your conscience, you have a choice either to submit to that or attack the one that is agreeing with your conscience as they're bringing truth to you. Y'all with me so far? That's why it's very important for us to read our Bibles every day. It keeps your conscience clean, right? It keeps your conscience where it needs to be. It's important to be in a Bible-believing, Bible-centered church. Why? Because our consciences can be, as I'm going to talk about this today, our consciences can be damaged. They can be damaged. Not to the point of being beyond repair, but they can be damaged. And that's this third point here that I want to look at this morning. And so if you look in the, the Bible here with me, if you would, meet me in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I, uh, this damaged conscience, you find several places in the Bible to talk about this very thing. And you can look and find the word pure, the phrase pure conscience and a good conscience and a defiled conscience, a evil conscience and a seared conscience. And that tells us that this incredible phenomenon of a conscience can be damaged, can be seared, can be defiled, can become evil. And uh, let me give you two examples of that. That's all we're going to have time for this morning on how this looks like uh, in a society and specifically even in the believer's life where our consciences can become seared. I... Um, Look in 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Bible says, Now the Spirit, verse number 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times sh some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Dangerous, dangerous condition, a seared conscience. A seared conscience. It's a type of conscience that's not working properly. It's not working as it's been designed to work. It's a conscience now that is so uh, distorted and so, uh, so hardened, so calloused, that it's not giving the signal back to the spirit of man what's going on in that heart. It's as if there's a spiritual scar tissue. That is developed in the life of a person that has dulled their senses to be able to know or even care about what is right and what is wrong. 
It's a seared conscience. In fact, it's just as the hide of an animal can be seared with a, a branding iron, it becomes, it becomes uh, like numb and, uh, and, and, and there's no pain. No matter what you do to that, it, it doesn't feel what it used to feel when it was, and before it was uh, cauterized. And, uh, and uh, it's this individual, when they have a seared conscience, they no longer feel anything. They no longer have the quick response to truth. It's now seared. It's not operating as it should operate. And so this conscience can show up in individuals' lives, but it can show up in generations and culture. Let me give you an example of this. Hold your finger there and go back to the book of Jeremiah, if you would. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah. It's a prophecy, a prophetical book. Jeremiah now is speaking to uh, Israel in the final stages of, um, of uh, of the nation of Israel before captivity. And you'll find here that they're in a mess. The, the culture's in a mess. The society is now disintegrated to, to a place where they don't, they, they're not worshiping God like they used to worship. Gone are the days of the great days in the temple where God met with them and the Shekinah glory of God showed up to where the priest of the Lord had to actually stop sacrificing because the cloud was so thick inside the temple. Gone are those days. Uh, the, the time that Jeremiah is writing... There's so much apostasy, there's so much wickedness in, even inside the temple that they made excuses for their sin. It's just before the Babylonians came and removed them from the city. But look, if you would, in verse number 15 and chapter 6 of Jeremiah. <clears throat> Watch what it says in verse 15. Great question here. Were they not ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, no, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they what? Blush. So by the, by the time we get here, the nation of Israel is not ashamed of their wickedness. They're not ashamed of the perversion. They're not ashamed of the, the idolatry, the adultery, the fornication, the perversion of the culture had disintegrated to a place where they're not ashamed of it anymore. In fact, it got so bad that they were not able to blush. It says, it says, neither could they blush. And, and I, I, again, I mentioned this about a year or so ago, that a blush is a very, it's, it's a reaction. It's a, it's, a, it's a response to a sin or embarrassment. You can't make a blush up. It's a neurological response to something that's embarrassing. And so they couldn't blush. Why? Because they had become so desensitized that they couldn't even come to a place where they would respond in an embarrassing manner to sin. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Uh, that's another whole point. But you can, you, you, you can know the di- Listen, for, for, for a nation to get where they were, they can know the difference between right and wrong. They can know that. Yet, because of a conscience that's been seared, that's been damaged, they don't care. It's like, it doesn't bother them anymore. The culture is so disintegrated that what used to be wickedness and filth and perversion is now commonplace. They just don't care. And today it seems too easy to become like this. 
In fact, today as you look and just comparing the condition of the culture that we're in today to the culture just 40 years ago, we're drastically different from the personification and what we're seeing as sin. It's becoming normal today. Far too many Christians can, can quote scripture. They know the difference between right and wrong. They know they ought to tithe. They know they ought to pray to God. They know they ought to praise the Lord. But have not even a moment's conviction about habitual sins in their life. Whether that's sexual sins or living together or having multiple partners or homosexuality or adulterous affairs. And let's get down to where we're living today. Or gossiping. As if it's okay. Or slandering or holding grudges or anger or hatred and every other sin of the flesh. We almost have become so desensitized to our sin that we know what's right. We know what's wrong. And we'll say statements like this in our culture. I know what the Bible says, but that's a huge indicator that the culture has become numb in their conscience. They couldn't blush. Remember... I think you would hopefully agree with me on this, that God's word never changes. What was sin yesterday is still sin today. And what is sin today will always be sin tomorrow. And so a seared conscience is, uh, is, is not someone that doesn't know the difference between those two. It's just someone that doesn't care. It's like being in a boat without a rudder. It's You first are okay and... One day you're going to look up and say, what, where are we at? There's no shore anymore. There's no, I can't see the land anymore. When a conscience, a culture has no conscience, it's just out there ruddering with, with no rudder. They're just kind of driving. Uh, when a person has no conscience, no response to right and wrong, they are drifting. They're, they're in a spiritual mess. So a damaged culture or a damaged individual is someone that has a seared conscience. Look in our text, go back to 1 Timothy quickly again. Note here that culture seems to have this. In fact, it tells us in chapter 4 verse 1 of 1 Timothy, the Holy Spirit is speaking here according to the third word of this verse. Now the what? Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times. Okay, now we're dealing with something that comes in the latter times. That's not to suggest that it has not happened other times in human history. But we do have a prophecy. In the latter times, there's going to be a departing from the faith. There's going to be giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And so it's, they're speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It happens in the last days. And ladies and gentlemen, we're there. We're living in, the, in fact, the Bible t- tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering unto him. If you're new to church or new to the Bible, we sang about the coming of Christ. Say, what does that mean? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and rapture and take his church out of this world. Okay, that's what apocalyptic messages in the Bible tell us. It's coming, and we are looking forward to leaving this world, and praise God for that. 
And I could be eating a big ribeye steak in the middle of that. He can come and I'd be fine with that. Amen? Leave it for the Antichrist to eat. But it tells us in verse 2 of that same chapter that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. As that day of Christ is at hand, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. So if we're going to chronologically lay out the future, the first thing, according to the Bible, is a falling away. A departing from the faith. People say, you know what? I'm done. I'm finished. I'm not serving. I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not giving to the Lord. I'm not winning, winning souls anymore. It's a falling away. We're seeing that today. You can go Pew Research, look at the Pew Research, either redefining who Christ, to ga- who is, who Christ is to gather the crowds or a diminishing congregation to anyone that holds true to a standard of God's word. But we're seeing a falling away. And you'll find they're doing that in the latter days. And they're seducing spirits. There's doctrines of devils. And in all of this, there's this unfortunate reality of a seared conscience. Very dangerous. Whole culture. The whole culture can be seared. In Jeremiah's day, there were no blushing going on. The very next thing was the punishment of God. It's a real indicator when there's... A conscience that is now seared. You're living in a place where things no longer bother you. No longer bothered by sin. An extreme version of this is a sociopath. They feel, they feel no shame. They may know what is right and wrong, but there's no shame. There's no, there's no, no feelings. No remorse. I looked up a couple of statistics from Pew Research this week. It's interesting, just looking at these numbers, <clears throat> the population of America and their view of abortion, for example. Now, if there's any ladies in here that have had abortions, there's grace, there's forgiveness at the, at the foot of the cross. We thank the Lord for that. But an interesting reality is this. 65-year-olds and older now, this is both, this is the whole population. 54% of our population, 65 and older, believe that abortion should be legal in most cases. 54%. This is Pew Research. They gave the numbers of who they did. But when you come down to 50s and early 60s, it jumps to 55% are okay with abortion. But when you get down to the 30s and 40s, it jumps to 62% are okay with abortion. Among the adults that are under 30 years of age today, 74% say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Now, now look at this. This is just the numbers. Think about this. What is happening today is the culture is changing. What used to be wrong now is more accepted. It's becoming more um, widespread in the younger generation not to be so biblical as our earlier uh, forefathers. Let me give another example. 
And you can do this yourself. We all know this is happening, but here's the, here's the numbers. The views on homosexuality. <clears throat> In 2007, 50% of homosexuals, they believe uh, homosexuality should be accepted. 50% in 2007 said homosexuality should be accepted as a lifestyle. In 2014, that jumped to 62%. A 12% increase in seven years on the population's general view of homosexuality. Now, I thought that was horrible, right? Until I read what the church was doing. 2007, listen to this, 2007, 42% of church-going folks, we know that could be a hodgepodge of everything, believed that homosexuality should be accepted. 42% in 2007. In 2014, it jumped, listen to this, to 54%. The numbers aren't out on, the, on where we're at today, but what I'm trying to show you is the culture's conscience is, is changing. Uh, things that were obscene and wrong yesterday are now normal. And the things that we say this morning, it's obscene, it's wrong, it's wicked, according to what's happening, will be normal tomorrow. You say, Pastor, how does this happen? It's a culture that is now numb to truth. They become seared. The church is right behind the world. And the culture's conscience is changing every day and there's problems with that, but that is a damaged conscience. Now, I'm going to make an application to all the Christians today. Because we also can have our consciences become sort of numb. Okay? The second one is this. If you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. The second damaged conscience in Hebrews, chapter 10. <clears throat> Boy, you're, you're listening quickly today. We're going to be out by 3 o'clock. This is incredible. Wow. Look at this. Hebrews 10. Watch this. Pick it up in verse 22. Hebrews 10, 22. All right. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Interesting, isn't it? A little phrase there, a little 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 indicator there's something much more sinister than a seared conscience. Seared conscience knows the difference between right and wrong, but doesn't really care. It's the person that can gossip but not even think, slander, not even think, have an angry spirit, not even think about it. They know what's right and right should be, but that's a seared conscience. Now, we're dealing with something much more sinister than that because when you look up the word evil, it simply means having bad qualities of natural kind it's corruption of heart. It's a disposition to commit wickedness. This is interesting. I was with a man several, um, several years ago. And his wife found some uh, text um, that he had been texting someone outside of his, uh, his marriage. She called me up. She said, Pastor, can you do something and talk to him? And I said, sure. Since it was from my former church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I got on a plane 
and I flew to Albuquerque, New Mexico to meet this man in a coffee shop. And I point blank asked him about where he was spiritually. He looked at me and he said to me, he says, my marriage has not been good for a number of years. And I met a girl at the gym and we are compatible. And here's what he said that shook me. And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, my conscience is clear. In tears, of course, I begged him to repent. And he looked at me, he says, please do this. He says, I'm not bothered by what I do, but I crossed over a line, and I know I did. Now, we're talking about a man that was a deacon, a man that loved the Lord. He would be one of the leaders in the church, phenomenal Christian. He looked at me, he says, I crossed over a line. I feel I can never come back, and I don't really want to. I got a phone call several months ago. I was outside chopping wood or something or getting wood from the barn. I get the phone call. I'm out 20, 20 degrees weather and I get a phone call. I don't recognize this voice, but it was a woman's voice. It was his wife. She had divorced him. And she said to me, she said, Pastor, pray for it. And she mentioned his name. Young man now, probably late 50s. He's miserable He's dying. And I thought to myself, horrible to see such a good man become so desensitized to where he could commit adultery and say, I have a good conscience. What happened? Look in Isaiah, real quick here. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. And look at verse number 20. Cultural. Cultural conscience. Watch this. This is a, it's another whole level, man. Listen, when you get a seared conscience, you get that thing cleaned up, get it right, get back to, repent, get back to the word of God. This is more sinister. Watch what this does. Verse 20. Woe unto them that call what? Now, 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 now Hebrews tells us about an evil conscience. But now we have a woe. When someone, there's a woe, it's like, whoa, 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 watch out. Be careful. It's like the skull and bones warning on, on a label. Don't do this. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is interesting. This kind of conscience here is a conscience that actually distorts truth. It, it, it makes you as a, as the, it tells us here, it makes you feel when you do evil that you're doing right. And when you're doing good, you're doing wrong. It's a lying conscience. It's, it's distorted to the place where now it's lying to you. And you're able to say words like, I'm in good conscience living in adultery. I'm in good conscience doing what I'm doing. The conscience has been sort of become evil. Now it's distorted to the place where now you don't even know the difference between right and wrong. A seared conscience, you know the difference between right and wrong. You just don't care. But now an evil conscience flips it. 
flips it. Do you realize right here, today, of course, we have a big election on Tuesday for Ohioans, a big election. I wish I was as optimistic as others. I, I, I hope the church votes. I hope the church gets out and puts her vote in. But right now, <clears throat> we have to raise a threshold from 50 to 60% voting because we don't have enough percentage in Ohio that would stand against the agenda on full-term full term abortions. Full term. And right now, there's more abortions in America than the population of Canada. Now listen, again, the conscience is seared of our culture, but the conscience also is now moving quickly into being evil because now they're normalizing wickedness, normalizing what was sin and filth and perversion, making it and promoting it as absolutely true. It's dangerous. <clears throat> and we're good at this. We're actually very good at justifying our own sin. Listen, the first time you begin to justify your sin, that could be the beginning of the end for you. Why is it so quiet in here? You all with me so far? It's like a counselor was sitting down with a, a couple and the man came into the office and says, I, 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 uh, I want to leave my wife. Why do you want to leave your wife? I don't love her. I, I just don't love her anymore. I mean, we, we, we used to be you know, in love, but I just don't love her anymore. I, I look at her more, more as a friend uh, than a wife. Well, the Bible tells you to be able to, you're to love your wife. I, I know that, but I, I, I just, I don't love her. She's a friend. And the counselor said, well, a friend loveth at all times. So you have no excuse. Even if she's your friend, you're to still love her. <laughs> okay, okay. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't even see her as a friend. It's, it's almost as li like we're living in the same home, but she's like my neighbor. <laughs> you all know where I'm going. Well, the Bible says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be honest with you. He says, all right, I, I, I'm living with the enemy. I mean, she is, a, she, <laughs> she is an enemy of mine. And the Bible says, you can fill it in the blank. Love your enemy. Listen, I'm saying, I'm saying this. Don't use the Bible to try to excuse yourself from obedient, being obedient to it and flipping it on its head saying, well, what used to be good now is evil and using the Bible to justify a behavior. An evil conscience is a conscience that tells you you're doing right when in fact you're doing wrong. It's a conscience that will make excuses for sin, a folly, and make excuses for wicked imaginations. And I... Uh, heard of the story of this college-educated young man in, in a debate over abortion. College-educated, Ivy League college, and I heard this. To make the excuse for abortion, he said something like this. He said, abortion is not murder. It's just the refusal to allow a part of a woman's organs to be used. So how, now listen, here's the question. I look at this. We, we have, again, culture has moved from a, from a good conscience to a seared conscience into now quickly moving into an evil conscience. 
Now, every believer here this morning ought to be careful of any one of those happening to us individually. So how can these two consciences develop? What happens? How does it, how does it happen individually? How does it happen in a culture? There are going to be a couple of thoughts. Now, again, it's my opinion. This is not in the Bible. It's just my opinion that I think it's in order. I think the seared conscience becomes, it comes first and then the evil conscience is next. If we become seared, well, we know right and wrong, but we just don't care. Just behind that is a conscience that flips right and wrong and begins to make excuses, biblical excuses, for wrong and condemns anything right, where the conscience is no longer telling them that they're wrong, even though they're living in sin. Here's what happens. Number one, repeated disobedience to truth. The easiest way for us to get a a dull conscience, a numb conscience, is just keep disobeying God. Okay? When, when, When the Bible presents biblical clarity and you just say, ah, it's for someone else. That's not for me. You repeatedly, and if you repeatedly disobey God, you're going to numb your conscience, sear your conscience. In fact, it says in Proverbs 29, I mentioned this last week, he that is being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. So there's a reproof that comes and then the hardening of the neck, a hardening of the heart. As Jeremiah had become adamant stone where it was so hard you couldn't talk to them anymore. Sometimes we talk to evangelists that go around the country or missionaries This is the state of the church. When you see churches across America, they're no longer listening to the word of God. Uh, They're they're out out a million miles away. The church is sort of their social club, but it's no place for truth anymore. In Matthew 23, you'll find even Jesus pronouncing judgment on the city of Jerusalem. And he said these words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest, the prophets. What does that mean? They didn't want truth, so they killed the truth bearers. They killed them, the prophets. And stonest them which were sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing, yet ye would not. I'm saying this, ladies and gentlemen, how does this happen? Just continue disobeying God. Just continue disobeying The word of God. That's what they did in the Old Testament. Prophets would come. Thus saith the Lord. We don't care. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what? And I believe this. I believe. I think communities across this nation. Are given preachers. To stand up and speak the truth. As uncomfortable as it is in the culture today, we need to have preachers across this nation that will have the boldness and the courage to tell the people of this land and around the world where truth is. Number two, how does this happen? Number one, repeated disobedience to truth. Be careful, ladies and gentlemen, on this. Listen, when you have your daily devotions, and the word of God speaks to your heart. How many have had the word of God? You close it and you say, that got me today. Are you all with me today? I hope you're getting this. No, the word of God just 
just really convicted you. I'm bothered by this. Holy Spirit, you have really brought something up in my life that I am struggling with. Thank you. Okay? Don't disobey that. Respond to that. Number two is an improper view of God. How does this happen? Simply stated here. When we begin to take the things of God lightly. Now, in most homes across America, there lies one of these. But this is not just any book. This word, this book, this Bible needs to be the most revered piece of literature in your family. It's not to be thrown on the floor. It's not to be collecting dust. It is a book that is not like any other book. It's not just something that we carry to church on Sundays. It's not something that stays under the car seat and we forgot where we put it until the preacher says, where's your Bible? Which I do when I see people coming with no Bibles. All right, love you. It's the most powerful book in the universe. And the words of this book should be read, meditated upon, delighted in, studied, used, applied, kept, shared, considered, memorized. Ladies and gentlemen, this book is not just any other book. And when we get this book where it ought to be in our life, we get a proper view of God. And when we get a proper view of God, we get a proper view of self. And we become more serious about sin in our life. Period. We're not arguing with truth anymore. Now we're revering it and we want it and we desire it. And now disobedience in our own life, no matter how small it is, becomes big. And we want to live for him. Number three. How does this happen? Well, it's repeated disobedience to the truth. It's uh, an improper view of God. But number three, and I'm almost finished. It's repeated disobedience to invitations. Repeated imi- uh, 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 disobedience to invitations. Isaiah 65, 1. It says, I am salt of them that ask not for me. Talking about us Gentiles. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me. Behold me. Here's God saying to his, his nation, look. Come to me. I have spread out my hands all day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good. And he says these words here, after their own thoughts. Here's God to his nation. Come, 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 please come. They said, no. (laughs) I want it. Don't care. Praise God for the Holy Spirit of God. Where he woos you, he guides you, he pulls you, he loves you. He wants you. Don't ignore that. Invitations ought to be a place where I'm coming to God. Number four. And I think this is obvious. According to 1 Timothy 4, we have what is happening rapidly right now. It's the latter times. We have a departure from the faith. And here's we have a major problem. And watch this. 
we have seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In addition to the problem with our own heart being cold and indifferent and not revering the word of God and not responding to invitations. And by the way, an invitation doesn't happen in church only. An invitation can be happen when you're you're walking down Walmart and the Holy Spirit says, I want you closer. Okay. But in addition to all that, we have now an external problem where we have doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. Some very, very bad teaching. So, a damaged conscience is a seared conscience. A damaged conscience is an evil conscience. And these can happen to us. But the conscience, by God's grace, no matter where you are, can be healed. Listen, if you looked at my life when I was 21 years old, 20 years old, 19, in the military, living for myself, said, there's no way that that is a young man that's a believer. No way. My life did not reflect it. I don't need to go into the details of that. And I thank the Lord for his grace. And I thank the Lord that he took me from where I was, was able to heal the heart. When I would take a cigarette and throw it at at someone in in, in their face for inviting me to church. He said, don't talk to me about that again. To where I am today, it's only by God's grace. Conscience can be changed. But it's going to be repentance, turning around, responding to truth, putting God where he rightfully should be in your life. Respond to invitations from him. Getting a proper view of sin. And if you're here this morning and say, Pastor, okay, I got this, that if I'm a believer... God gave me a gift of a conscience. That gift is not the Holy Spirit. That gift is not necessarily truth, but it's light that can be damaged. And say, Pastor, I don't want it to get damaged. I want to have a clear, good, biblical, these are biblical words, conscience before God. And that's not going to come by accident. You're not going to wake up and say, I got a good conscience now. No. That's not going to come by accident. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor, if I died, I'm not sure that I go to heaven. Most important question that anyone could ever ask you is where are you going to spend eternity when you leave this world? Most important question. And the only way that you can get from here to heaven is through Jesus Christ. He made the statement. He said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So if you want Heaven, you want eternal life, is only one way. The only other option is eternal damnation. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation. Say, Pastor, if I died, I want to, I want to be saved. I, I, I want to make sure I'm on my way to heaven. Let us share how you can be saved. If you're a believer today, you say, Pastor, I want my conscience to be right and clear. I don't want to trust my own heart. I don't want to trust my own thoughts. And my conscience get to a place where it's sensitive to the Lord. And maybe you hear the day and say, Pastor, I need to pray. God would soften my child's heart, my parents' heart, my loved one's heart, my coworker's heart, that their conscience would be pricked, the Holy Spirit would be able to use it, that they would get saved or they would get right, they would turn around. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. How many would say this morning, God has spoke to my heart, Pastor. There's something that I need to do, a decision I need to make. We're almost finished here. 
But that is me today. Would you slip your hand up and down? God has spoke to my heart. Someone I need to pray for today, a need in my life. God bless you. There's hands all over. Thank you. Hands all over. Evil conscience, seared conscience, damaged consciences. Maybe you're here this morning and say, Pastor, if I died, I don't know where I'm going to go, and I'd like to be saved before it's eternally too late. Can I pray for you today? I won't mention you by name today, but I'd like to talk maybe after the service or even during the invitation. Say, Pastor, pray for me. Would you slip your hand up and down? Is there anyone at all? Anyone at all? God bless you. I see that hand over here. Father, we love you. We are privileged to come together in one place. And as tough as this subject is, Lord, we know that it's needed today. We know this morning there's multiple needs here today, but I pray you would help your people to see the danger of having a damaged conscience and how easily it is that we find ourselves numb. And we find ourselves in a place where we're lying to ourselves. God, I pray you would help your people, strengthen your people, put your arm around each one of us today, And help us to see truth in what it is, the beauty of eternity with you. And God, one day we're going to be walking down streets of pure, transparent gold. And this old sinful heart of ours, Lord, I pray you'd help us. Give us grace to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Please bless the congregation today. In Jesus' name we pray.